Okay. Welcome everybody who uh, was kind enough to join us for um, our uh, third pilot of these podcasts that we're, we're testing out. Um, and uh, as we just give another minute or two to see if anyone's going to join in the early phase, um, you know, much appreciated having everybody um, being willing to spend Thursday evening with us. We're looking to uh, continue to get feedback on these things. Um, we'll be issuing um, some topics that, uh, that, that, go, that go beyond what we've done so far. But you can start to get a sense if you've tuned into any of, any of the first two and now three. We're very much um, all about the wonders of the urban slash ecological environment um, that we all live in, whether it's Philly, whether it's the suburbs, but um, generally uh, th th this whole Delaware Valley area is pretty urbanized and um, everyone has their own take on it. Um, our take is that there's a lot of wonders to behold. Wonders are not always like always great things, but they're they still make you head. sometimes you see something that's not so great, but it makes you scratch your head and still wonder about it. Um, and we're big on curiosity and checking things out around us. So um, so that's what uh, that's what we're up to, and we're looking for all the feedback, and um, and we're also looking kind of to develop a uh, you know our, our style in in these things as we go on. So. Um, without anything further, I'm just going to uh, get into what we wanted to cover this evening. Um, Bridget, do I have clearance to just kind of go in and, and, and do? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, assuming that you're somewhere where you're, if you're driving, you can only do so much of this, but, um, if, uh, if you're not driving, um, I, I encourage you to, um, to sort of just like, you know, spend, view the next hour as a, as kind of a time to get into the, in, just into like a general relaxed zone or mood. I'll talk for the next uh, little bit. We'll still open it up for um, comments, questions uh, after I'm done. Um, I am, um, and by the way, this is meant really to be enjoyed without, without looking um, and just really like listening and taking things in. So I'm, I'm going to light a, my own incense here because I want to be, uh, I got my um, windows open. I can hear some birds chirping. So I can, I can hear my cat trying to get in my, uh, my sunroom here. Um, I got a piece of um, uh, a, a cool rock, an ancient rock that I found in Mill Creek in, in Rolling Hill Park in Gladwin yesterday. I think it's Baltimore nice. It's really dense and heavy. And I know that it's millions of years old and it's been tumbling around in the water for some time. So I got my rock to help get me in the mood. Um, in case you're thinking about what I'm burning, I'm burning Shoyedo's Palo Santo. Its ingredients are, are Palo Santo, cinnamon, benzoin, which I think could be spice bush because um, ben Lindera benzoin is spice bush and some other spices. So that kind of, you know, if I didn't um, have to have my eyes open, I'd be talking to you with eyes closed and smelling and 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 listening as well. So, to get into our our evening, uh, back to my uh, borrowing from Rod Serling, or at least being influenced by him. There's this place, 
a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities, a place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony, where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature, and yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth, as an equal member of the community with rights just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. So again, welcome to our, our podcast. And um, hopefully uh, that gets you a little bit uh, loose for what we want to discuss. This evening, we kind of want to get into aspects of really like what's what's the power of life you know what 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 is life all about and um you know like did you ever think about this force called life so we're going to talk about that through bugs and trees um because life is a, like humans don't always think this way life is about everything from a single cell on up to you know the, the wonders of human beings and so um if you tuned in last week you know that we, uh, we we got into some detail about the the uh, one of the most recent invaders to um, Pennsylvania, um, the spotted lanternfly, and um, we kind of discussed a little bit about its biology, a little bit about its lore, the fact that it has a variety of life cycles, and the fact that it's really on its it's on its increase right now. It's it, it's it's clearly 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 invading, and um, just picking up on some quick thoughts that, that kind of gets us thinking about like this life discussion. Um, you know, here's this thing, the news is telling you to get rid of it, squash it. Here's how you get rid of its egg masses, that kind of a thing. Um, and truly, 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 it's the definition of an invasive species, a species that comes over here, could be native, it could be non-native, and really makes its presence felt like to a large degree at the expense of other living organisms. And so, so on one hand, the spotted lanternfly is, has been found eating our crops. Yet on the other hand, the insect population um, in the world is plummeting and insects are a key, key, key part of the overall food chain towards the bottom of the food chain. Insects fall off, fall out of that food chain. The entire food chain just collapses from apex predators on down. It definitely causes a mess with something called honeydew. Honeydew is a polite term for like, basically it's urine. So what, what we talked last week that a, um, that a spotted lanternfly is basically a sap sucker. So its food is liquid. It sucks the phloem, like the life juices basically, um, that give, the, give a, a plant its ability to live. And, and it basically takes that from the plant. And so it, and that, and, and it processes that. And then when it excretes it, it, it basically excretes a sweet substance that scientists have given, again, that polite term honeydew. And so, um, so that's, what's, you know, that's what's going on. And, and, and the honeydew, aphids do the same thing, by the way. Sometimes you, you look at a tree or you look at a plant and then you see, in the early going, you might see crystally things. And if you touched it, it would be the sticky honeydew that, could, that, that was excreted by an aphid, or in this case, a spotted lanternfly. However, um, Sometimes you come back to that same plant and then it's all black. And so what is that black? Well, it's most likely something called sooty mold. So again, we're in an ecosystem here. So um, 
you know, that some, some animals like ants, they view the honeydew as a delicacy. They love aphid honeydew on, on milkweed plants. And then, but you know, if that honeydew continues to stay, just like anything else, it biodegrades. And, you know, so microorganisms move in. And in this case, it's the sooty mold that tends to like get it. And as the sooty mold eats and oxidizes, um, what it leaves is that, is that black residue um, that, that, that you're seeing there. So, yep, it's a mess. But what about the fact that the adults, you might think that the little, that the, um, the larval states, you might think they're really cute with their black and, and white spots, um, but the adults sport this beautiful red. Um, it's as vibrant and vivid as like a, 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 a male cardinal that just like has a fresh molted set of feathers. Um, it's gorgeous. If you, you know, and you, you, you see uh, sometimes when you catch, um, you know, these, these uh, spotted lanternflies as they like come into July and they start becoming adults, they're, you know, they're slow-ish flyers. Um, so you get sometimes, you, you know, the light catches them in the right way and you get to see their underside, which has this like bright, bright red. That's a gorgeous color. Overall, you might think it's a gorgeous bug, you know, light tan with, with, with black spots on the wings. You know, there's some white in it and then you get, you get that flusher red. So one of the most beautiful bugs you're going to find around. Um, well, it's eating some of our native plants. That's a problem. But it's most um, definitely deadly um, to its favored plant, which happens in the United States to be deemed a, quote, noxious weed. Um, and that's the Alanthus altissima, otherwise known as the tree of heaven. And so interestingly, how the, the um, you know, this bug made its way um, to the United States it, it, and it was first discovered in Pennsylvania. I think we said it was about 2014 when, when um, people first started noticing that it, that it was here, which means it probably somehow managed to like, you know, have some egg mass latch on to something that was in a ship that was brought to United States soil. Somehow, you know, enough of those egg masses got, you know, hatched. And, um, and then at some point there, was, there were enough of these bugs around to start making their presence known. And then ever since, in true invasive fashion, the bug with very limited, um, it's, you know, given it's a new immigrant, there's not a lot of things that, that yet have evolved to notice it, eat it. And so it's been, it's been kind of prolifically increasing um, without, without any real check on it. So, but at the same time, we're gonna talk about this thing called the tree of heaven that's been in the United States basically since colonial days. Well, what do you know? The tree of heaven comes from China and parts of Korea. Um, so does a spotted lanternfly. And so the spotted lanternfly is, it uses that as a favored host tree in China. The reason why it doesn't kill all the, all the um, trees in China is there's other predators and stuff that kind of keeps the, the bug in check. But here, when people are always like saying, oh, geez, um, trees of heaven, they're terrible. They keep, doing what's called suckering. They sprout roots all over the place. Um, they smell bad, although I don't think they do, um, they, but they have a scent to them. They're a weed, get rid of them. Um, and a lot of people spend a lot of money on trying to get rid of them and, they're, and they've invaded forests. Um, you can find Tree of Heaven in, in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. You can find it all the way out west. It's, it's, it, it really has made its presence felt through most of the upper parts of the United States. Um, and yet here's this bug that a lot of people are saying get rid of, and it's now attacking it. You know, one of our most highly noxious weeds, um, the tree of heaven. So again, that's a little bit of bio, a little bit of background. It's a good time to read 
a fictional novel. And I don't know if, if I, I don't ask you to, to look, but in case, you know, I got this famous book from the 40s called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. So I'm not going to read you the whole book because it's like four or 500 pages. Don't you worry. I'm going to read the first page and a half to you, though. And let's see what, where this takes us. So A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was written by Betty Smith. It was a huge bestseller. 1943 is when uh, it came out. And here's how the book starts. By the way, there is also, even though it's repetitive, um, there is a little excerpt in the beginning where um, the foreword by Betty Smith says, there's a tree that grows in Brooklyn. Some people call it the tree of heaven. No matter where its seed falls, it makes a tree which struggles to reach the sky. It grows in boarded up lots and out of neglected rubbish heaps. It grows up out of cellar gratings. It is the only tree that grows out of cement. It grows lushly, survives without sun, water, and seemingly without earth. It would be considered beautiful, except that there are too many of it. So she uses that to open her book. And then in chapter one, just sit back and listen, you know, for like the two minutes it's gonna take me to, to read, um, you know, the first couple of pages. Serene was a word you could put to Brooklyn, New York, especially in the summer of 1912. Somber as a word was better, but it did not apply to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Prairie was lovely and Shenandoah had a beautiful sound, but you couldn't fit those words into Brooklyn. Serene was the only word for it, especially on a Saturday afternoon in summer. Late in the afternoon, the sun slanted down into the mossy yard belonging to Francie Nolan's house and warmed the worn wooden fence. Looking at the shafted sun, Francie had that same fine feeling that came when she recalled the poem they recited in school. There is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks, bearded with moss and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight, stand like druids of eld. The one tree in Francie's yard was neither a pine nor a hemlock. It had pointed leaves which grew along green switches which radiated from the bow and made a tree which looked a lot like an open of open green umbrellas. Some people called it the tree of heaven. No matter where its seeds fell, it made a tree which struggled to reach the sky. It grew in boarded up lots and out of neglected rubbish heaps and it was the only tree that grew out of cement. It grew lushly, but only in the tenement districts. You took a walk on a Sunday afternoon and came to a nice neighborhood, very refined. You saw a small one of these trees through the iron gate leading to someone's yard, and you knew that soon that section of Brooklyn would get to be a tenement district. The tree knew. It came there first. Afterwards, poor foreigners seeped in and the quiet old brownstone houses were hacked up into flats Feather beds were pushed out on the windowsills to air, and the tree of heaven flourished. That was the kind of tree it was. It liked poor people. That was the kind of tree in Francie's yard. Its umbrellas curled over, around and under her third floor fire escape. An 11-year-old girl sitting on this fire escape could imagine that she was living in a tree. That's what Francie imagined every Saturday afternoon in summer. And the book proceeds. Oh, what a wonderful day was Saturday in Brooklyn. So here you have the start of a novel in which the tree of heaven 
is a metaphor for survival, for tenacity, for the ability to thrive in like, in, in like very difficult, hostile environments like the urban environment of, of Brooklyn, not unlike the urban environment of Philadelphia. So again, this tree, this noxious weed, um, it certainly, uh, it plays like a strong supporting role in a, in a book that was a bestseller. Um, and it's, uh, but, but it, you know, metaphorically speaking, it, it, it has a real powerful presence. And we're gonna talk about that in a little bit more about, you know, is, you know, if, if something is a weed to somebody, you know, what does that word even mean? Um, you know, when that thing might be like magnific magnificent to somebody, somebody else. So the tree itself has a long, long history, just like a lot of successful trees. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it's native to China. In China, it, uh, it has certain medicinal uses. Um, it's, it's part of the forests in China. So it's like, it's not, it's not at all viewed like, um, it, we, we, it's like we might view an oak tree or something like that here. Um, it, it, it really, um, it, it grows in a range of habitats, but very interestingly, it likes to grow out of limestone soils or rocky areas that are comprised largely of limestone. And so when you think about Philadelphia and you think about, by the way, there's two like dominant trees you know, they, they go through all the, uh, you know, neighborhoods of Philadelphia that are highly developed and, you know, which has more biomass between the two. It, it would be a good, it, maybe now the, uh, you know, the, the uh, spotted lanternfly is going to start making a dent, but tree of heaven and Polonia tomentosa, also known as the empress tree, another Asian import. Um, they're, they're kind of like the trees of Philadelphia. Um, so, um, but what does, what is Philadelphia unfortunately largely comprised of? it's comprised of concrete. And what is concrete largely comprised of? Well, it's limestone, calcium carbonate. So, you know, concrete is a mixture, but the, you know, the, 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 like when you think about it, our building materials are rocks that, that, that are natural, and then we might do something to them. You know, mud is a sediment from old rock and stuff. Mud baked in an oven becomes a brick. But so your brick is, is it's our baked equivalent of shale. Shale is, is a, is a um, sedimentary rock where mud that sat around for a long time got pressurized by natural forces and the mud turned into shale. Well, you could consider if you have a brick house, you have a mud house. It's just, you know, we copied nature. Well, concrete is a similar thing. In, outside of Philadelphia, limestone becomes a common bedrock. Um, excuse the, uh, the sound up above. Um, the bedrock in Philadelphia that we'll bring, we'll talk about in, in, a, in a future uh, podcast to get, because, because it's, a, it's a wonderful rock, is Wissahickon Schist. Um, so Wissahickon Schist is the reason why that's worth a podcast unto itself is if you study Wissahickon Schist, you can also consider the building of the Pocono or Appalachian Mountains. You can consider when, when Africa bumped up against Philadelphia, when there was something called Pangea. So there's a whole story told in the Schist. But once you get a little west of Philadelphia in a lot of places, you have all these old limestone quarries. So limestone's a very, very common sedimentary rock. When limestone becomes metamorphic, it's marble. But calcium carbonate is, is, is at its heart. Calcium is a, is a, is a valued plant food. Next to, um, you know, you, you, when, you buy, when you buy soil for your plants, potting soil, N, P, and K, um, nitrogen, potassium, um, and uh, phosphorus are, are um, 
they're, they're like key elements that, that plants really need to, to do well. Well, calcium is right behind that. And so when you think about it, in a hostile environment, like you know, different neighborhoods in Philadelphia, think about all the concrete that's there. Tree of Heaven makes these tiny little seeds. They can blow all over the place. A little tiny seed um, ends up finding its way into a little tiny crack. And I'm talking tiny. We could, this could be like, you know, like a fraction of a millimeter we're talking. Um, the seed just kind of lies there. There's always a little bit of dust around and there's always a little bit of moisture around. And on top of that, concrete, do you ever pour water on concrete? There's something called porous paving, but concrete itself, whether it's, whether it's like specially manufactured porous paving, concrete is able to absorb water. It's, it's actually a porous rock. Um, and so just like limestone is. So you think about it, this little tiny seed finds its way into a little tiny crack in the concrete. You might not ever think anything of it. Um, it rains. That rain not only like hits the area, but it can seep in a little bit into that concrete. Next thing you know, that seed germinates. And lo and behold, it sends out these little micro roots and they're like, whoa, man, there's calcium here. We're all right, we can do this. And so you know, the, the roots get a little bit established, a little bit more water comes. Next thing you know, um, there's a little bit of green. The plant's photosynthesizing. It's, it's taking energy from the sun. It's converting, you know, it's, it's doing the photosynthesis synthesis thing where it's getting that little bit of water that's there. It's taking carbon dioxide, a nice greenhouse gas out of the sky, um, merging the two using the sun's energy. Next thing you know, the little tiny thing that was nearly microscopic, you can start seeing it. And you can go to places all throughout Philadelphia and see the starts of these, of these intricately leaved plants growing out of the sidewalk your good bet is that it's a tree of heaven you know, trying to make its way to the heaven. Um, and so, um, so that's, that's pretty cool because when you think that it does really well in limestone in China, that tree comes to the United States and it's like, whoa, man, I am free. I can, I can deal with it. I, I love really fertile soil, so I can do well in Pennsylvania forests, but I can certainly grow in these, in these areas where there's no other trees and then there's nothing here to eat me. So, um, so that's, that's how, you know, like an invasive, like a, a native tree in China can come to the United States and then become invasive. Um, let me read you also something. This I I'm just going to attribute this if I can find it to um to a little excerpt from Wikipedia. Um, so just like uh, already you can tell that that um the tree of heaven has made its way into the culture of the United States through books and something else I'm going to share later. Um, it's 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 all. It, it's the same, if not more so, in China. So in China, I already said that there's, that there's a lot of just general good uses for the tree. Plus, it, ho it hosts a certain moth. The silk, the, um, there's, a, there's a, an Atlantis silkworm moth. Here, it would be non-native. In China, it, it's a, something that's used to make silk, but it's also a native insect. So the tree is part of the Chinese ecosystems. Um, but at the same time, it's part of Chinese culture. So in Chinese literature, Alanthus, aka tree of heaven, is often used for two rather extreme metaphors, with a mature tree representing a father and a stump being a spoiled child. This manifests itself occasionally when expressing best wishes to a friend's father and mother in a letter, where one can write, quote, wishing your Alanthus and daylily are strong and happy, unquote, with Alanthus metaphorically referring to the father and daylily to the mother. Um, par parenthetically, daylily Right now, they're coming in the bloom in orange and different shades of yellow all over um, Philadelphia. You guessed it, 
you see where daylilies are from. There's native lilies, which are not related to daylilies that we do have in the Pennsylvania forest. Um, daylily is, is, a, is, is an Asian plant. Um, so so um, in here, Alanthus is, is um, metaphorically referring to the father and daylily to the mother. Furthermore, one can scold a child by calling him a, quote, good-for-nothing Alanthus stump sprout, unquote, meaning the child is irresponsible. This derives from the literature of Zhengzi, a Taoist philosopher who referred to a tree that had developed from a sprout at the stump and was thus unsuitable for carpentry due to its irregular shape. Later scholars associated this tree with Alanthus and applied the metaphor to children who, like stump sprouts of the tree, will not develop into a worthwhile human being if they do not follow rules or traditions. So end of that little uh, Chinese culture reference, but that stump sprout thing, that's one of the reasons why people like get so angry at the tree of heaven. You cut it down, it sprouts somewhere else. You think you killed it, but it has this ability to do what's called suckering. Suckering is when a plant is able to make new baby plants. They're not genetically different, they're clonal, and they come up from the root zone. And so that's, that's what makes tree of heaven extra invasive. It, it, it lands in an area. So say you have a, a crazy lightning storm in the Wissahickon, and you, and you can find places like this, and it might be in a slightly disturbed area. One particular place I'm thinking is near where the Henry Avenue Bridge crosses over the Wissahickon, there's a lot of tree of heaven at the base of that bridge um, where, again, where it crosses over. And so when you put a big, huge um, arch span bridge over a ravine or, or a valley like the Wissahickon, you cause a lot of disturbance. And then you cause a lot of disturbance going for like forever as long as that bridge is there because all of its drainage can't stay on the road. So it, it causes erosion and it causes all kinds of turmoil in the soils near it. So, um, so what, you, what, what you have going there is you have a lot of Alanthus that, that if you hike on the, what I believe is the yellow trail of the Wissahickon. But what you notice is you come to some areas and chances are some big tree at some point fell down, created what, what's called an opportunity in the canopy. And then there were these Alanthus seeds uh, had been around anyway. And so the Alanthus has the ability to, to sprout really quick. But then on top of that, it has the ability to do this suckering thing. So at the same time that a tree gets established, as its root system grows, it's able to sprout up all these little clones right next to it. So it can create its own grove, and it's possible that that, own gro that whole grove might just be one genetically similar tree, just with a lot of sprouts. If, um, if you've ever played Trivial Pursuit, um, when I was a kid, I remember there was a question in Trivial Pursuit, and I didn't understand the answer. Um, it said, what's the biggest organism known to man? And I thought it was like the blue whale. Well, the answer was the quaking aspen, um, uh, which, which, is a, which is a tree, even though it's native to a lot of the United States, it has the same ability. A, a quaking aspen is able to go into disturbed sites and it's able to get established really quick. And then, and then it'll, it, can, it can quickly sucker all these different clones. If you've ever been to Houston Meadow outside in, in the Wissahickon Park, there's, a, there's an area and, and, and you can look at all these quaking aspens and if you check the DNA, they're probably all the same tree. So, the, so when trees have the ability to do that, meaning they can be rapid colonizers when there's a disturbance, they have, they have an invasive tendency. A quaking aspen is a native tree to the United States 
And yet if, you're, if you have a meadow somewhere, it could literally be invasive to that meadow if you don't want to have trees there because it has the ability to kind of just like basically grow really fast and not just grow as one, one tree. It can quickly establish all these little babies, which then grow up in tandem. So, um, so that's what the, uh, you know, back to that stump sprout analogy, it's hard to kill an Atlantis because it has, like you think you cut it down, but you probably didn't kill it. So let's take it from China to the United States. In 1784, um, by the way, before 1784, um, botanists in, in Europe were fascinated by the what they saw as the beauty of the tree in China, and they started planting the tree in places in, in Europe. But then somebody in Europe sent seeds to William Hamilton, who was a gardener of all places in Philadelphia. And, and I think I mentioned um, briefly last time, and if not, um, like Bartram's, yeah, I think I mentioned the Norway maple, like places like Bartram's Garden, there were, you know, botanists in the 17 and 1800s, they were fascinated with ex what they called exotic plants, the plants from different lands. And so there was always a trade going on between kings and presidents or, you know, you know, that kind of thing where, hey, we'll, we'll show you some really cool, you know, like flora from, you know, the Northeastern United States, check this out and send that overseas. And then they would send some really cool things from Europe or Asia over here. So Unlike the, the um, spotted lanternfly, Alanthus was purposefully brought to the United States. And not only that, it was planted in nurseries all over. And by 1840, you could get it almost any nursery and it was a highly popular ornamental plant. Invasion is, is, is it, it, you know, the history is from that point on, it, it just had a life of its own, whether, whether somebody planted it or not. So, so that's, that's a little bit of um, natural history on this, on this tree of heaven. Um, you know, what I wanted to just kind of make us think about, you know, in prep for me to leave you with a really beautiful piece of literature and then see what kind of thoughts people have about this stuff is, did you, like, before you, you, you right away, you know, conclude that, you know, something is invasive, you want it out, it, it needs to be gone, you know, that, you know, uh, like, by training, I'm an environmental scientist or an ecologist. And everything that we do is part of an ecosystem. So anything we do is not done in a vacuum. You know, if you pull something out of your garden and you don't put anything back, something else is gonna replace it anyway. If you knock something out of the forest that you consider invasive, if you don't put something back soon, something else is gonna go there anyway. So you, you know, like, there, like anything that happens in an ecosystem causes some kind of, you know, like domino-like effect throughout. Ecosystems are really cool. They're really dynamic. When someone says an ecosystem is stable, it's not an accurate term. They can be generally stable, but there's always things going on. Um, but, uh, you know, but when you, when you start saying like, boy, they were overrun by things that are from Asia. They're not, they're not good for us. You know, the tree of heaven, um, this, the, the, the polonia tree, um, Asian earthworms. But once you start trying to get rid of those things, that, that especially when they were a product of our own actions on the land, um, then you start upheaval. And so there, there's just no simple way to, to say, oops, we made a mistake, pull it out of the ecosystem and have that ecosystem go back to like whatever you consider normal. There's going to be some other, other impact. The other thing is, you know, last week we introduced the idea of native, what's native and what's non-native, let alone what's invasive. 
Um, and, I, and I said that invasive can be something that is native or non-native. It's really that, that, ref, that refers to its growth habit in relation to other organisms. Um, but, um, but as far as, uh, you know, something, you know, something like, uh, like the tree of heaven goes, um, like what, what is native and, and, and what is non-native kind of goes out the window because what, it, what did we do, you know, um, since before 1784? Well, once Europeans came here and they see like land and they see like, oh, we can establish ports, we can establish cities. So what is native anyway to Philadelphia? All the native soil that was in Philadelphia is somewhere floating in some one of the oceans somewhere. It's, but there's not, you can't find an ounce of it left in Philadelphia. It's all been stripped away or washed away or dug out. You name it, they're, they're, like the native layers of the soil, they're long gone. Philadelphia, you, it, you might think it's flat. It's a, it should be a rolling hill environment. But once William Penn decided that, we're gonna, that Philadelphia is going to be built on a grid, well, if you, if you want streets to run perpendicular to one another and your mode of transport is horse or horse and buggy, um, if you do that and you don't do cutting and filling, then you have your horse, you, you'd be seasick all the time because you'd be going up and down these rolling hills because Philadelphia is the start of the Piedmont in French, the foothills of the Appalachians. But what did we do? We said, no, like um, William Penn and, and Thomas Holmes surveyor, they were logical thinkers. No, let's make crisscross streets. So once they did that, they flatten the whole area. It's not natural, but when you flatten the whole area, where's your native soil? What is, where's some of the upper layer of your native rock? Where's the native hydrology with, with streams and, 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 um, and springs that might be in the way? So again, we've totally obliterated anything that was native about you know, the, the, you know, the uh, upper layers of the soil, upper rock layers, water, that kind of thing. And here we are saying like, oh, these trees are terrible. Well, the trees are just, being, they're, they're, it's back to that life thing. They're just, they're just living. Some, they, they got here, so in, in some cases we brought them here. Uh, you know, so we, 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 we willingly made them immigrants and, and, and then they, they do what, they, what they're wired to do, live just like we are, they wanna thrive. And so if, if the native soil is gone, if the native rock is gone, if the native hydrology isn't anywhere near what it used to be, and, you know, who's to say, that, 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 it, that a tree of heaven living on concrete, which came, which comes from limestone that was dug out of some other quarry somewhere else, who's, who's to say that that's not native to the urban Philadelphia environment, okay? And, and also, like, if you, if you use a people analogy, Native Americans were considered to be the Lene Lenapes that are here. But if you were born in, regardless of, of where your ancestors come from, if you're born on American soil, do you not consider yourself a Native American? Well, if, if, if Tree of Heaven came here in 1784 because somebody decided to send seeds here, it was an immigrant, but now it's long established and it's long established on these, on these totally changed around um, surfaces with soil and rock like we talked about. So what is it? Is it is, you know, you can make a, a whole philosophical case, but just tossing that in there. So, um, but you know, Tree of Heaven, Spotted Lanternfly, a lot of others, um, they are immigrants. We invited them here. And so we invited them here, whether we realize it or not. Like we literally invited the tree of heaven here because um, William Hamilton ordered seeds. So, so what about that? You know, do they have rights? Um, should we be able to say, we don't really like them. They smell bad. 
where they, or they make honeydew or they're eating our crops, let's just get rid of them. Let's just stamp the life out of them. Um, the, the word noxious, noxious to whom? Like, what does that mean? You know, uh, you know if, if, you, if you're an artist and you happen to be somewhere and you get this really great view of a spotted lanternfly or you see the silhouette um, of, of a tree of heaven, it's, it's, it, by the way, in the Atlantis genus, the tree of heaven is the only one that's not tropical. Most of the other Atlantis relatives, they grow in tropical environments. But when you look at the Atlantis tree with its, its pinnate, it's called these intricately pinnate leaves. So when you look at an Atlantis and you see all these little leaves on it, you're actually looking at one leaf with a whole lot of leaflets. It looks tropical. It makes you think of like the tropics probably when you look at it. Well, is that, you know, would you call that noxious? Would you call that noxious if the only tree in your backyard was a, was a, you know, was a shade giving, um, you know, tree of heaven. And so that's the kind of thing that, that you know, that's, that's worth thinking about, um, you know, when you're, when you're considering life, let alone when you think about the cell itself. To me, that's, that's, a, that's a scientific miracle. The fact that at some point as our earth developed, next thing you know, you had single cell, you know, um, primitive relatives of algae floating on the oceans and they had, and they, and they basically developed this ability to, to grow. You know, they could take the sun energy. They had a little, they, they were, they, they somehow, you know, some, whatever the first cell was, something mutated so that it could have a little bit of chlorophyll in it. And then it, it developed the ability to feed itself. That's what plants do. They're the only organism that can manufacture their own food from scratch, meaning CO2 plus H2O plus sunlight. And then next thing you know, they make sugar and then they can grow from that. Well, if that's not a miracle worth kind of thinking about, if not celebrating, I don't know what is. That's what we derive from those single cell things floating on the oceans, you know, millions of years ago. So again, you know, that, that, just, that, you know, that thought about life, um, that's why, like, just personally, I just don't, you know, I have to think hard about what do I kill? If I'm home and there's a mosquito on the inside, I admit, I slap it. A lot of times they're the Asian tiger mosquito. Boy, do they hurt. They're tiny and they, some of them carry disease and I just, you know, don't really want them, you know, biting my kids and stuff. So if, if I actually can catch one in the house, I'll kill it. Outside of mosquitoes, I don't really know that I, what I advertently kill. I don't, I just, I just, as a tree hugger and stuff, I have a hard time even weeding sometimes, you know, so that's just me personally. I'm not, and again, it's all, it's, um, it's just all your own personal, you know, ethic, but, um, but I do highly, highly value this power of life. And, and, um, and, and again, you know, we already talked about like with, uh, you know, like if, you know, if, if this, if we just try to stamp out an insect that's new here, we don't yet know what's going to evolve to eat it. It hasn't been here that long. Chances are more and more birds and things will do that. Um, it's probably going to develop some disease on its own. So it's not going to stay omnipotent forever, most likely. And, um, but it's, and again, like, you know, what about this insect population thing? Like, you know, um, like right now, like, do we, do we need all that we, all we can get? So, um, you know, last little thing about, about back to trees, think about what a tree does. I don't care where it's from, what species, all trees do some certain things to us that you would have to pay a lot of money for otherwise. Trees help you manage your stormwater. Um, trees make it cooler just by virtue of something called evapotranspiration. There's always a little bit of, you know, of, of um, moisture coming out of them just as they're sucking it in. Trees will give you shade at a time when you need it. A deciduous tree, 
like a tree of heaven on the south side of your house. It's like it's tailor made for a green a greenhouse, meaning um, you know econ uh, ecologically sensitive. Um, when 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 it's the summer and it's fully leafed out, you get shade on that side on on that sunny side of the house, so your cooling bill is lower. And then what happens? Fall comes, it drops all its leaves, and it lets that southern light heat you up, right? So you can use less less of your um, you know coal-fired heat or you know electric heat or whatever you whatever you use um, for for your heat. So the tree so the tree is doing all kinds of services. The tree what's what does it like spew out oxygen right trees have some ability to, to filter pollutants not like tons and tons but they can make a difference aesthetically what does a tree do i mean it, trees make people happy very often um it, it provides a look to your property you know so so like i can go on and on and on and on about the value of a tree if you have kids and your tree is fortunate enough to still have its lower branches like what's more like, you know, escape oriented as a kid than to, than to have the ability to try and climb a tree. Can you imagine a five-year-old kid saying, I don't want to climb this tree. It's from Asia. I don't want that. It's, it's an invader. Get, I just want a native tree. Like, I don't think that happens very often. So trees do a lot for us. And, and so when people start making these wholesale comments, like, ah, tree of heaven, bad, um, Maple tree, or like not not a Norway maple, um, but uh, you know sugar maple, good. As an ecologist, I don't. I say neither. Okay, there they, they, there's a lot of good that comes from the most invasive of, of invasive trees. One last thing: the streams in Philly are very they're, they're they're very 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 stressed. One of the one of the biggest Asian invaders, Japanese knotweed, which by the way you can use it and make um, a pie that tastes like rhubarb pie, but. It, the only thing sometimes keeping our stream banks together is Japanese knotweed. If you pull it all out, what's going to happen to the soil on the, on the banks if no native plants come? So, you know, leaving you with that. So the, the thing that I want to leave you with is another piece of literature. Okay. And again, it, it, it goes back to that, that idea of how do you value life and then a tree that might be considered noxious to someone might be considered life-saving to another. And, um, you know, there was this article that got me so into it that I cut it out and I still have it. it. Has a beautiful picture on it. And it's an article from the New York Times, Sunday, April 7th, 2013. It's entitled A Year in Trees. Um, it's it's listed and it was in their, uh, I think it was in that, you know, their opinion section. So it has opinion by Bill Hayes. At this time, he's listed as the author of The Anatomist, A True Story of Gray's Anatomy, and a forthcoming collection of essays about New York Insomniac City. I'm sure that essay is, is out already. Um, so here he is writing about an incident that happened to him and he connects the tree of heaven to it. So again, this is one where I encourage you, I still have you know, a little bit of my incense still burning. It's a long stick. Um, it's gonna get me in the mood. I'm gonna do my best not to get emotional by, by the end of it because I always do um, when I read this article and I mean always. Um, so, uh, so here it goes. Someone asked me the other day how I had gotten over the sudden death of someone I loved what I wanted to say but found myself unable to explain 
parenthesis for it would have sounded too strange, end print, was that I learned a good deal about moving through grief from some trees I once knew. They were not my trees. I did not plant them. I lived in an apartment surrounded by them. The only tending done was to give them my full attention over the course of four seasons. When I moved in, it was April, still cold, and the branches were bare. Facing northeast, my view of Manhattan was unobstructed, seen through a latticework veil. There were five trees, each distinct. They were not beautiful. My next door neighbor, a landscape designer, told me that the species, Alanthus altissima, is an urban weed. But I never expected beauty. That they were tall and strong and present was enough. I found that Alanthus derives from an Indonesian word meaning tree of heaven. I didn't cover the windows with shades or curtains. I would wake with the sun and lie in bed and watch the tree limbs for a minute. Some mornings, the branches looked as if they were floating on wind drafts, as light as leaves. With a stormy sky, they turned black and spindly, like shot nerve endings. Two years had passed since my longtime partner's death, and though I had largely adjusted to his absence, I still experienced intense pangs of grief, painful unpleasure in Freud's exquisite phrase. At times, I would be tempted to take out old photos, just to look, just one picture, just for a minute, like a junkie on the verge of relapsing. But I resisted. I had seen the trees stand up to strong winds and hold their own against the elements. By the end of May, buds had sprouted and turned to leaves. I lost my view completely, but gained a lush green canopy. Along with the leaves came another development, rustling in countless variations, soft, sharp, gentle, syncopated, like a quintet doing vocal exercises in anticipation of a command performance. Privy to melodies out of earshot to those on the street below, I tried transcribing the rustling, but to no avail, the letters of the alphabet proving insufficient somehow. The summer was a rainy one, perfect for watching tree TV, as I came to call it. Once during a ferocious thunderstorm, I just managed to escape. I found bows being tossed about like rag dolls. The branches thrashed violently, whipping back and forth, slamming against the windows with a thud, then sliding down slowly before being lifted aloft again. I was riveted. The trees, clearly overmatched by the combination of winds, rain, and lightning, were not fighting the storm, but yielding to it. This is just how they were built, how the species had evolved to survive. I am hardly the first to note that trees are at their loveliest when the leaves die. Correction can be. My tree's leaves turned a sickly yellow and emitted an odor reminiscent of cat urine. In a way, having a new frame of reference was for the best. My partner had died on an October morning, and even if I were somehow to forget the actual date, I will always associate it with walking home from the hospital under a bright blue sky, the air crisp, trees lining the streets in their full glory, autumn unmistakably. When it came time to scatter his ashes, my five sisters joined me at a forest preserve where the trees were ablaze in gold and russet. I buried his ashes at the base of a redwood. With winter, the trees finally began shedding leaves. Background became foreground. My view returned. One morning as the sun rose, I caught the Chrysler building casting its shadow on the MetLife building. A slim, dusky finger drawn across the striated facade as if tickling it awake. I felt I must be 
the only person on the entire island of Manhattan seeing this. The trees took weeks to shed completely. Their limbs were covered until Christmas with what looked like dry corsages from a hundred high school proms. Birds came, whether or not they were actually migrating, I don't know. I wanted to think so. They rested and preened, reminding me of myself finding refuge here. That the trees were resilient no longer surprised me. Still, I marveled at how they took blows during the season's first serious snowstorm. The wind boomed like kettle drums. The snow fell hard, hard, piling on limbs till they threatened to break. How is it that snowflakes, tinier than tears, can carry such weight? By midnight, Manhattan was gone. In its place, a peaceful new world, camouflaged as a cloud, Atlantis, I would call it. My lease renewal letter arrived in February. Had my landlord not raised the rent, tipping it into the unaffordable, I might have stayed another year or two. But then again, maybe not. What I could no longer romanticize was how small it was, too small to have even one person over. I found a bigger, cheaper place and made plans to vacate. I had a good cry the night before leaving. I would miss this place. When I woke the next day, I found the trees outside my bedroom window not moving at all, as if frozen solid in the night, an eerie reminder of my last image of my partner. I pushed the thought away. I threw back the bed covers and put my hands to my stomach. I want to be as still as that tree, I said to myself, and stayed there until the feeling took, limbs not moving, trunk barely rising with each breath, neither yielding nor resisting, just being still, just being. So I managed to hold it together. Um, that touches me every single time I read it. Um, so that's what I wanted to leave us with and then just see in, in the last um, uh, 10 minutes or so, if there's any, any, any sharing or any, any, any questions people have just about any of this stuff that I talked about. So Bridget, you can do whatever you need to, to do. And we have a handful of people. Um, I'm curious to see what, what people might have uh, thought about or what questions anyone might have. Yeah, so we'd really like to hear some feedback on, you know, how everybody feels about the podcast and where we're going with it and what we talked about today. So I'm just going to open it up um, with for the Q&A or if you want to just ask in the chat. And by the way, Bridge, I can't, um, you know, the, uh, my thing just says panelists and, and attendees, so I don't even know how to tell. Okay, there it is. So I, I see. Never mind. Um, so we do have one question from Nathan. He asks, so when it comes to restoring a place such as the Reading Viaduct, should the trees of heaven be eradicated, managed, or left alone? Um, boy, there's a question that's like ultra dear to my heart um, because I... Uh, I'm like intimately familiar with the Reading Viaduct, Nathan. I wonder if you've been up there yourself. I've been up there numerous times and I was privileged, but um, this will help answer your question. Um, oh, that'll, that explains it. Um, uh, so you might know from one of my tours, um, especially if it was one on, I don't know if you went on my tour below it or, above, or literally on top of the structure, but the, um, you know, in the Land Health Institute was privileged in a, a few years ago to do a plant survey of um, all the plants that are up on the Reading Viaduct. And for the other couple of you on the call, 
if the Reading Viaduct is this 100 plus year old rail structure that the Reading Railroad used to use to go into the Reading Terminal. That's where all, if, you, if you commuted into the city, you, you, you rode on the Reading Viaduct because, before you um, parked in a beautiful headhouse. And um, the, uh, so the Reading Viaduct, um, you know, in 1984, um, Philly had built this thing called the commuter tunnel and they shut the electric off of the Reading Viaduct and it went, and basically they just, they shut it off, but they left the structure there. And since 1984, you have this amazingly evolved novel ecosystem of plants. And so a few years ago, we got to do a plant survey of what was up on the, uh, on the viaduct. And some other group had done a survey about five years before us. When they were up there, they found about 50 species of plants. Again, these plants came there on their own. And then when we went up there, we found like 75. So there's the evolution we, we were, is taking place as we speak on this super hostile environment. So there actually aren't a lot of tree of heaven on the Reading Viaduct. The main tree up there, um, which we're, we're gonna do a podcast on Polonia because it has a story unto itself because um, its seeds used to be used like in place of styrofoam, not in place, but before styrofoam was invented as packing material. If you're a tree, if you're, if you're a train with a boxcar and your boxcar overturns and a box opens up and it's loaded with packing material and that falls out on the tracks and that packing material or tiny little seeds, you can guess what happens on places like the Reading Viaduct. So, um, but my opinion is like, I would leave the tree. Um, it's part of that ecosystem. It's a novel ecosystem, especially up there. There aren't that many of them. And, um, you know, I believe that, um, you know, I, I believe it's part of the city of Philadelphia. Um, there's also oak trees up there. There's like three species of oaks. That means squirrels somehow managed to get acorns in between rocks and stuff, which turned into like, there's a willow oak, there's a red oak up there. It's crazy. Um, so, so the tree heaven is part of that ecosystem. And I, I tend to be a minimalist. If the trees come and they're, and they're making a place for themselves and, and there's no major invasiveness going on, which there is not, I would, I would tend to leave it. So, and I appreciated the comment I believe I just saw from Lauren, who we're gonna draft soon to do, um, help us with mayflies. So um, she's gonna be one of our guests. Um, anything, um, Anything else? I'm, I'm content to even have you have heard my voice. Um, it's so funny. My, um, I, I guess I got an hour out of my incense. So it got, you know, it, it, hopefully you guys got in the mood. It got me in the mood and I still got a little bit of my incense left. Um, but this is, you know, this is get, getting closer to the nature of how we want to do these things. So I'm hoping that, um, you know, if, uh, that, that we get some feedback and if it's positive feedback that we start spreading it out there. Um, any, um, you know, in the last uh, couple of minutes. Um... Um, and just one thing I just wanted to say is we're kind of working on um, new ways and new platforms to kind of make this how it was today, but just more of like a recorded thing. So it'll feel more like a podcast because I think this was a great way to, you know, express what we were talking about rather than the past um, meetings we've had. I will give a shout out. Thank you to my buddy, uh, William M. Scott, William Michael. Um, so thanks for, uh, for for tuning in as well. Um, Nathan, thanks for the question. Lauren, thanks for the uh, um, the good encouragement there that you like the way we're going. Um, Bridget, I will leave it to you to you know I, I don't want to like I'm I'm cool to just kind of leave people with the uh, you know with that image that um you know I if, if you're like me that article is powerful and doesn't I don't need to sum anything up on it because 
uh, when you talk about trees and their power and life and all that kind of thing, I, I think that author, you know, couldn't have done it better. Yeah, I think that was a great way to end it. Just kind of like leaves you thinking. Um, I also like learned a lot too about um, invasive species, and I just like sitting in on these because I there's a lot that I don't know on the top on these topics, and it's just very interesting. So yeah. Um, so with that, I hope everyone enjoyed, and we hope to see you next week. Oh wait, and and, and, and oh, and thank you, Bill. Oh. I just I just got your thing. Um, much much appreciated. So. Thanks all for tuning in. Um, hope to see you or, or have you hear us again soon. Thanks everyone.